Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrew for Aleph Insight. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm here with Jordan Fermanis, Chris Ragg and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights. And this week we're discussing the benefits of being the underdog. Um, Chris, um, think of you as an overdog rather than an underdog. Yeah, yeah, an uberhund. An uberhund, exactly. Uh, go for it. Um, well, so this really, the, the genesis of, of this idea came from the recent sinking of the Russian flagship, the Moskva. Ah, yes, yes, um, yes. And... Uh, and the way it's played into lots of what lots of people have been saying about um, naval platforms for a long time, that they're they're basically just waiting to be sunk, you know, by something a lot cheaper than a giant um, bit of metal that sits on the uh, on the sea. Um, and so it got me thinking, why? Um, you, you know, and every, everybody's also the, it's really come into focus at the moment with the Ukraine-Russia um, conflict that, you know, Ukraine was viewed as the underdog and yet is doing very well. Lots of previous conflicts, you know, have involved insurgencies against large, um, well-equipped uh, forces, you know, from Western powers or, or other places. And, and I just started thinking, why... Why doesn't everybody become the underdog? Because it doesn't seem like being the uberhund is a, a an effective strategy. Uh, so that was it, really, just to try and work out, you know, what would it mean if everybody were trying to be, be the underdog? Gotcha. OK. Um, I feel this could be a quick one. Because I mean, first, just some, just straight off the bat. Um, first of all, we should have got your Canadian mate, that uh, military academic type guy, on this. Christian. Right? There you go, Christian. He would have been brilliant. Um, but he's not here. Um, yeah. no. <laughs> you'll have to make you'll have to make do with the underdogs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Second, um, this this ties into that thing about being entrepreneurial in when you work for a huge company, and they say, yeah, we, it's really important that we we support that you you're entrepreneurial and think about it as your business. You can't, okay. Because you can't replicate that because um, you can't replicate not having a safety net, essentially, in, in terms of entrepreneurialism. I think there's something similar going on here. If you're a big organization, you can't mimic that. Third and final, we, we have this thing about underdogs. Do underdogs really do that well? Is it just every now and again they do well and it, and it looms large in our imagination? Actually, they get flattened and torn to pieces by the Uber hunt all the time. Well, I've yeah. got some data along those lines. So let's go for it. Let's have Nick and then we'll come on to yourself, Jordan, and then, and then see where we are with that. Go for it, Nick. Yeah, I think the... So I, I'm interested in this... Pop, what's the popular wisdom? As you say, certainly in business, it's hard to get data in business, actually, but you know, there's a lot of popular wisdom about small companies are going to do better and eat you up and disrupt you. Um, as Bob Marley, or was it Lee Scratch Perry said, mm. if you're a big tree, we are a small axe sharpened to cut you down. Wise words. Wise words indeed. So uh, there is some analysis that we can do here. The um, UCDP conflict data contains state versus non-state conflict. United, what's UCDP? Oh, the Uppsala something... Oh. So, okay, just fence data program. Conf, Upsala, I want to say it's Uppsala Conflict Data Program. 
It's something like that. But anyway, it's, it's they've got loads of data sets describing different conflicts and sure. outcomes. And um, they is there's one about a conflict termination for state versus non-state. So yeah. for which, assume that's overdog v underdog. Yeah. Um, out of all of the uh, conflicts that has a, have a resolution in the data set, which I think goes back about 70 years. Can I take a guess? Um, well, hold up. Go on. So the outcomes are peace and right. ceasefire. Yeah. Boring. Not interested in those. Yeah. Uh, we want to look at government win versus non-state win. Yeah. So that's overdog v underdog. And then there's a whole, actually a whole bunch of them uh, which just peter out into what they call low activity and just disappear as conflict. So the, what's the ratio between government wins and non-state wins, yeah. do you think? I'm going to say... Mm, um, when it is resolved in that way, I would say it's seventy percent in favour of, of of the state. Very good, very close to it's about two to one, mm. more or less. Actually, close to seventy percent. So, yeah. Then there is another paper by Henderson and Bayer called "Wallets, Ballots, or Bullets," looking at what you should do if you want to win wars. Should you uh, be rich? Should you be democratic? Or should you spend more on your military? And they conclude that it being having more military, actually, none of them is not is definite, tr definitely trumps the other. Um, but if you have a bigger military, you're more likely to win wars. Well, you know, no shit. But I mean, there you are. Um, democratic states are do marginally better than wealthier ones. So in in the sense that so in a sense, you can pay for war with either freedom or money. Either both will give you a bit more advantage. Mm. Um, and if you have a bigger military, your wars tend to be shorter. Um, but the interesting thing was the, and this is looking at all conflicts, well, state versus state conflicts and comparing outcomes, um, that the more powerful, the more militarily powerful side wins what um, proportion of the time? So state to the question so again? So in state versus state conflicts. Ah, and and, and then the so question is... Well, how often does the more powerful side win the one with the bigger military 90 percent of the time no, same two to is two to Still one two again to one, more or less it? so it seems to be a kind of general rule that um even if big. you're the big dog you've still only got a two-thirds chance more or less of winning obviously there's lots of other drivers it depends on the size of the small dog the smallness of the other dog i think i mean obviously you know there's a, a, an insurgency Whether that dog was is well fed um, if, democratically elected. Right, but if you imagine, ferocious. if you think of a, uh, you know, an individual terrorist as waging a war against the UK, say, if you, for, or an individual burglar or something like that, you know, then obviously states would look like they're winning a lot. So you, you've got to get to a certain size before you can be a participant in a conflict with a state anyway. Yeah. So I think so what I was saying is whatever that size is, um, you know, it's it, once you're there you're probably already in the realm of actually being serious enough to be bothered, you know, with fighting against, if you see what I mean. So, yeah. Um, anyway, so that, so I think the data supports the fact that it's still better to be the overdog, but that actually underdogs have a really good chance. And we and we probably want to talk about what some of the factors are that drive when underdogs exactly. win. Exactly, exactly. Um, does one of you want to take, pick up on that point? Or yeah, yeah. go, Chris. Yeah, so I, I think it, there's two things that occur to me there, right? One is um, just the potential discrepancy between the underdog's 
costs and the overdogs costs, right? So if you look at Ukraine, uh, these the UK-based um, or, or the UK-provided uh, anti-tank missiles, which we're, we're sending out, that are manufactured in, in Belfast or whatever, they're about £20,000, say $30,000, right, a, a, a pop for those. The tanks they're blowing up are about $8 million, right, a, a, a go. So... So you're not talking about a two to, you know, a two to one ratio uh, there. If you look at, um, uh, if you look at things like, um, if you look at things like the cost of the um, the flagship that was that was sunk versus the cost of the missile that sunk it, you know, an even you know greater sort of um, uh, d discrepancy. Um, so so you know you've got huge huge discrepancies between the costs of. Um, in asymmetric warfare, but there's a there's a there's a caveat to that, which is like um, you don't knock up cruise missile, anti-ship cruise missiles, or uh, anti-tank weapons in your in your garage, right? You know, unless you're Peter or somebody. But um, <laughs> uh, but um, you uh, uh, so yes, Ukraine is militarily an underdog, right? But its technology, some of its technologies, at least, you know, not undermining the, the you know, incredible sort of um, plucky reserve they've, they've, they've been showing. But the, you know, weapons coming from the West, aren't, they might be cheap to manufacture, right? But ultimately, there's this massive R&D infrastructure around that, right? You know, the, 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 these aren't insurgency weapons. So I think that's the thing to caveat about um, the Ukraine-Russia conflict is it's, um, you know, you've got a huge military-industrial complex supporting Ukraine's fighters. But the, the, other, um, the other thing um, Nick's analysis was looking at was winners and losers, right? Um, and he sort of talked about, well, peace settlements are, are boring and, a, and a, a bunch petered out, right? Yeah. But, of course, if you're, if you're Ukraine, you know, a peace settlement or it petering out and eventually having some you know, could be classed as a win would would be classed as a win exactly yeah. so so actually your two to three ratio so not only is it way cheaper to 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 do it potentially um uh your your outcomes um you know you're not if you're if you're uh, an underdog you're not hoping to win Right, you're hoping to not lose. Okay, so anything that's not you losing, Vietnam is, is a good example of that. Maybe, good, good right? example, yeah, exactly. May, and also maybe Afghanistan yeah. as well. And you look, and you look at those insurgent. Um, uh, you know, talking about cost. Okay, you look at those insurgent um, conflicts and the sort of Blair Bush wars. You know, are by some calculations said to have cost eight trillion dollars. Right. You know, if you look at the, the broad range of costs and if you look at things like Vietnam, you know, they were linked to subsequent economic downturns in the US, you know, in, in the sort of 70s and so on. So um, so it, so they're lo even if they're winning, they're losing. Exactly. Right. Yeah, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Not to mention the ongoing culture war, which is still with us. Well, quite. Vietnam. Yeah. Yes, yeah. mm. yeah. but they anyway. did win in the movie front. So mm. true. Yeah. Uh, I want to bring in Jordan. But before I do, just a couple of things occur to me. Democracy. Um, I know we've we've talked about that, but it occurs to me like that having that flexible kind of structure and openness to, um, and also other democracies come and help you out. Yeah. Although I guess if you're not a democracy, other 
Totality well, Blair, like Blair about, once but. made the point on um, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And John, John Stewart, who I always liked, showed a bit of ignorance here, where Blair was saying democracy, there had never been a case where democracies have fought one another. And John Stewart said, what about the Falklands War? Uh, at which point anybody who knew anything about Falklands <laughs> War <laughs> laughed at themselves. But uh, there yeah, we go. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one other final thing, something just jumped into my head, which is that um, I think one of the things that these bigger powers do do, the overdogs do, they do try and replicate the underdog by forming things like commando units and special forces and stuff like that. Anyway, that's quite an aside. Um, Jordan. Um, I think in each of those conflicts in Ukraine, Vietnam, um, the underdog effect is also a psychological one. Um, and I think that might be one of the drivers that explains Nick's um, data that he found is that when you're at a significant power disadvantage to your opponent, um, there's a psychological effect that takes place um, where your survivability becomes more important to you, more significant perhaps, especially if you're fighting for your survival as a state. Um, and potentially that could also help you um, receive aid from other countries as well um, to build a sort of case for yourself on an international stage. So I think there's also, a, and, and for the fighters themselves, the people fighting the war, I, I think there's also an underdog effect that takes hold um, when you're trying to fight against a superior military power. Yeah. I mean, it appeals to the human psyche, this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, there's great in the in the Hunger Games where um, the uh, he's the bad guy, but he's like the the marketing gaming guy for the bad guys. Says, well, the problem is well, the reason why everyone loves what's her name, um, uh, Katniss. Katniss. I don't know because I'm not a, I'm not a young adult, so I don't know anything about the Hunger Games. But you should watch the film. It's a good film. Now. All right. Um, and he says um, the problem is everyone loves because everyone loves an underdog. And then the president played beautifully by... Um, uh, is it Donald Sutherland? It is Donald Sutherland. Um, of this, you know, pr ruthless president of this vast um, state says, I don't. Um, <laughs> and, and um, yeah, so Jordan, give, develop further what you were saying. Well, I was looking at this underdog effect. Um, and I think it's especially pronounced in like, sport and the politics domain. Um, but from the research I could find, it said that the two sort of fundamental elements are external disadvantage, so a disadvantage that is out of the underdog's control. I suppose that would be like getting invaded, perhaps in this example, and great exertion by the protagonist, so that you must be able to sort of overcome trials and tribulations. Um, and that those are sort of the two elements that can make you an underdog. And then I guess the flow and effects from that could be um, the way that people perceive you and the the support that you might receive and and then you're I guess you're allowed to also build a bit of a argument or case for yourself by claiming the underdog tag as well yeah yeah I mean these definitely feed into what we've talked about before which is um stories and the, the narrative and the, the hero, structure what's it called the, the hero's, hero's journey, journey the three-act structure yeah uh, remember the Alamo so I Thermopylae. and that that's true and and I think we often try to uh, you know one of the things we talk about is why that is important um as a as a sort of cultural artifact, the, the, that narrative uh, structure. And of course, it's because it, you know, well, I suppose that you would hypothesize that it's because it carries advantage to you to understand how to do that, you know, so that when a big threat emerges, you can see yourself in that role and say, ah, 
okay, well, in this story, yeah, they got beaten about a bit, but then they went back and they worked out how to exploit the weak points in their opponents and they used strength and cunning and guile uh, and, you know, their moral rightness to defeat them. And, and obviously that's a useful story for us to carry around. Um, but I, I was just going to say, I'm not sure. I think we're muddling a lot of things up here as and calling them all being an underdog. So Chris was saying, Chris was sort of talking about if you like platform-centric sort of militaries like the uh, Russians versus, versus, if you like, kind of more mobile, um, you know, kinetic uh, launcher kind of based um, uh, military activity, which is a bit like what, uh, you know, we've seen the Ukrainians fighting them with. Um, that doesn't necessarily, there's no reason you can't be an overdog and be armed with loads and loads of missiles. And the underdog might be the one who has, a, who has the, um, you know, the, uh, the platforms that you're blowing up. I, I think in this case, what makes Russia the overdog is simply that they've got a much bigger, mili bigger military, right? But it's not necessarily more capable than what is effectively the Ukrainian army fighting with a equipment being being given to them by everyone in the world. So are the Russians, you know, are the Ukrainians the underdog? So there's that. There's that kind of your decision to sort of relatively spend on different types of weaponry and platforms. That's one thing. Then there's the fact that they're the ones being invaded, which is, you know, you're never that. It's very, very unlikely that a small force is going to invade a larger country right you're not that would never normally happen but that's a, that is a different thing really just because you're the victim of the aggression doesn't necessarily mean you're the underdog but of course our natural inclination is to see it that way um and and then there's the question of well actually what does capability mean and i'm thinking of things like uh rock's drift where you know we, the the british won a very small force 150 mm people or so, you know, one in inverted commas, certainly defeated the Zulu attacks eventually mm. um, at, at, with a small cost to them and a large cost to the Zulus, you'd mm. say. But, uh, I mean, you'd want to sort of think of the Zulus as the underdog in that. Yeah. <laughs> like charging yeah. all these rifles. Well, exactly. So, so you know, that's, and that's, that was in Wikipedia's list of, you know, when, oh, here's some examples of when the underdogs won. And, and I'm not sure. So I, yeah. I suppose the question is, what should we be taking account of? What should we be controlling for when we're thinking of who the underdog is? Just before we do, um, probably the Russians. If you're a, a Russian who supports this special military operation, you might feel that you yourselves are the underdogs. Mm. You might... You certainly would feel that you're part of that you're persecuted because of course that's the narrative mm. the and not and, and frighteningly similar to of course the narrative in the 1930s in germany um i think that's fair comments there mm. um we need to move towards a conclusion um uh, chris what have you got to say well i was just i was just going to sort of pick up on on what nick was saying there about um uh, about what what constitutes a uh um, an underdog effect because if you look at the conquistadors for example you mm. know a small force but an invading force but a technologically superior force mm. what who, who, was who the, is the, the, underdog? the aztecs yeah. or the conquistadors you know um so so actually there's lots of things at play but i i think um you know f sort of funding is probably quite a good um quite a you know who's got most money is probably one of the best ways of, th of thinking about it, I, I suspect, who's been spending most money on their their forces. Mm -hmm. um, and then also to pick up on Nick's thing, you know, about about um, sort of 
stories. The, the, the underdog story is just so, you know, so rife in our culture of, you know, you look at David and Goliath and, um, all, you know, almost all, um, all uh, military um, events in nations' histories are all about, that, that, you know, define them, are all where they are the underdog. So you look at the American Revolutionary War where, you know, um, they viewed themselves as an insurgency. You look at the Battle of Britain and the Spanish Armada. But you also look at, you know, pr pretty much any... And Agincourt. Any, Agincourt, yeah, yeah, exactly. But you, you look at all nations and it's all about here's where we, by virtue, won against, you know, um, incredible forces. So, so it, it, yeah, may right. well, it may well be that the underdog effect is we're biased towards it in our minds because of this. Um, and that's almost, uh, that is contained in how we frame the question, which is, oh, we, we you know, we should be the underdog. How can you be the underdog? It's, it's already, an assumption is already built in there to the to our question. But, but obviously trivial, as Chris was saying, the point about if you've got more money, you can always spend the same amount as the underdog and have some spare change. Yeah. So if it was better to be the underdog, you could just ignore the fact you had lots of money. Mm. But people don't do that. And, mm. I, and, I, so, and I, I think it's worth saying, because we've talked about these situations which tend to be one side getting invaded by and large. Um, the, the reason that we have a big platform-centric kind of military is because you can't invade a country halfway around the world with just a load of Stinger missiles. You need a navy and you need air platforms and you need it's about power to drive around exactly yeah. you can't so so and again i mean that, again that's more of an attacker defender type advantage disadvantage but you know if russia is the one who needs to who wants to get force moved around they've got to use platforms these big things yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so so, so just you know almost, that's another but it's point. almost built in this is quite interesting i think um that that we've you know the reason that the the um overdog underdog dynamic exists is because uh, for somebody to think of, contemplate invading someone, they're going to be bigger than than them. So that's sort of um, built. So any invasion is going to have an underdog overdog type thing. Uh, the to, in order to invade someone, you need big stuff that you know is a bit clunky and and to get all your force there. Yeah, you need to move. You and need the to, other side don't need to you move. Need to, you, you need to move, and. By its very nature, the people being invaded are going to be smaller. They're going to know the local terrain better. And so they're going to use uh, different kinds of tactics. To, they're not going to be able to put as many big things up against you. So it's it's almost in any time there's an invasion, there's always going to be an underdog and an, and an overdog. And uh, it's going to be the invader that's the overdog. Yeah. I've got, I've got some advice, actually, for would-be underdogs. Okay, go on, yeah. Uh, just a bunch of uh, from examples from history and what that what you should try and get if you if you're an underdog. Okay, a lot of the things that Chris has just mentioned actually, but yeah, local knowledge obviously a massive one. You look at Finland uh, in the Battle of Suomessalmi or whatever, where with their you know ski yeah. troops and knowledge of the terrain, yeah. were able to funnel the Soviets into you know a certain places where they could be just t surrounded and destroyed. Um, Terrain, obviously very important. Again, ties into local knowledge, but but uh, Thermopylae, classic mm. example of, you know, using the terrain to your advantage and, and neutralizing the size of the enemy by forcing them to fight on a narrow front. Mm. Um, 
morale, again, you, you probably got better morale if you're the one being invaded because you've got more to fight for. But, you know, t yeah, Taliban versus the US. And there's a power um, in ind indignation as well. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, you, you have the just cause. Yeah. 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 And I think there's it's interesting, uh, like World War One, there was a lot of morale going around, but in, at different times. So the, the, um, the Austro-Hungarians -Hung suffered essentially a kind of collapse of morale on the Eastern Front. Had to be shored up by the Germans, but then later on it was the Russians who who ended up having their morale collapsed after the revolution. You know, um, better training and tactics. So Rourke's drift, classic. Just be better, get good, better well, technology, and, and yeah, have better technology. And then you've yeah. got all the Sun Tzu things like surprise, um, the battle of um, the battle of uh, Oze Hazama. Uh, in 1560 in Japan when 3,000 uh, people defeated a force of 30,000 by pretending to be all in their camp when they weren't. They snuck up on them and raided their camp and, and defeated they, them that way. And, and they were having a drunken party Probably, at the time, yeah. I think, weren't they? Um, yeah. And you've got deceit, which crops up a lot, but just pretend to be bigger than you are. So the, uh, oh, okay. there's an example of the Battle of Longawala in 1971 during the Indo-Pakistani War where 150 Indians and inevitably 10 camels <laughs> were able to keep 4,000 Pakistanis at bay by kind of pretending to be a big force, but also by doing things like putting fake minefields out and funneling the Pakistanis mm. into certain kill zones and stuff. So, yeah, those are those are uh, how to be an underdog. But, I mean, you know, you've only got to pick up any military textbook and find those. Nice. Um, look, I've got a question I want to move on to is to, to wind us up. Um, before we do, anything to add at all? We good? Well, okay. we didn't really talk about whether it applies to business. <sighs> nah, I mean... I know business is boring, but the trouble is if you were a business guy... Uh, at this point, you'd be screaming out. You'd be saying, "What? Well, go on, this is just like, you know, small companies and the way that they defeat big companies. Well, but there's not that much evidence for that, actually. Right. So I just want to say that's not... First of all... It, we can't transfer any of the principles across, no? Well, it's. I'm saying that the temptation to do so might be misleading. Quite apart from the fact that it's very rare you get a, a conflict as such. Like, you, you're fighting over the it's same fighting market, market share, right? but you're it's not necessarily... In, it's interesting, though, isn't it, while, how, how warfare can be... And, and sport, right, can be more dynamic than the world of commerce. Because, by and large, yes, companies can collapse, you know, and go bankrupt, and small companies can grow rapidly, but it's not, it's not like, it, you know, wars, they kind of produce results in a really short short period of time and it it takes it takes a very long time uh, or you know a relatively long time for a company to be, you know and, and there are lots of inherent advantages about being big to do with economies of scale and market reach and brand recognition and all that sort of stuff that don't seem to apply in conflict yeah. well, I don't we, know, when was the last time you got a new country who were the big powers in the 19th century britain the us russia France, Germany. It's not like you haven't heard of any of those countries. They're still a big deal. I mean, mm. you know, it's very rare that a country will go out of business. And, and it's also very rare that a new country will appear. The US obviously is an, is an exception, but will, will appear and suddenly be big, you know, within a, within a short space of time. I, yeah. I mean, we talked about this in another podcast anyway, about being, isn't it, being a small, nimble business or something. We, we've yeah, talked yeah, about yeah. this. We've done well, anyway, this. the point is the evidence is mixed as far as I can see. Okay. It's like it's not necessarily better to be small. And it might be that actually firms are investing more now in the kinds of things that make small companies successful. 
So big firms are becoming more kind of innovative and spending a lot more on R&D and stuff sure. than they used to. So. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm desperate to ask a question. Go on. Uh, to finish us off. Um, Favourite underdog? Now, take that in whatever... Happy with that? Mm. Yeah? Um, take that in whatever uh, context you want, right? Um, could be, of course, from conflict. It could be from... Um, arts, literature, business, sport, whatever you want, okay? Who is, who or what is or was your favorite underdog? Um, if anyone's got anything, go for it. I've got a, a, an example. Well, I wouldn't say they're necessarily my f favorite uh, uh, underdog, but I think it's a really um, sort of, uh, it's a really high profile case of an underdog in the sporting sporting setup was when uh, Leicester in, in uh, the 2015 yeah. 2016 season nice. managed to win the 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 premier league uh in the in the game where they played against man city who were the biggest spending team uh um leicester leicester city's team was purchased for uh 32.5 uh, uh, million dollars uh and man city's team was 473 mm. uh, million dollars so and they drew uh you know and, and they obviously went through the whole the whole season um uh winning their whole team could have been bought for half the price of liverpool's star defender that that season wow um you know so it, it, and and that you know that is an area where um you know in the premier league it's the Basically, in the 29 seasons or whatever they've been of the, the Premier League, is the only time somebody who isn't a massive club have have That's, have, yeah. have won it. Um, but at the start of the season, they were five thousand to one odds to to win to win the league, which retrospectively has got to be a stupid place to set <laughs> set your set your odds when there's only 20 teams in the. In it means the that kind of thing. If they'd have played the league, uh, you know, since the building of the pyramids to now, <laughs> yeah. in theory, that should only ever have happened once. Yeah. I remember Chini wreck on. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Um, I should listen to to Nick more as, as 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 he's always telling me. But I remember once in a podcast episode, you said to me, um, to all of us, if you ever see odds like that. Just, just take those odds. Doesn't matter what it is. Just take those odds because they're always going to be well off, well, uh, well out. Um, but as an aside, so why is it? I mean, if we investigate, you know, why an underdog wins sometimes? What, mm. what do you think it was with? Well, Leicester? I think that season it was. Uh, you know, it is rare, right? It's one out of twenty-nine, and it might not happen for another twenty nine seasons or whatever but and sorry to interrupt as having you ask the question i think one of the great things about football is no matter what resources you've got they can only feed into 11 people on each side there's a yeah. limiting there but um, and they are only people right yeah. you know um that you can't enhance them with a, a new engine or something right but yeah i cut um, you off so go yeah no right. i was just going to say i think it was um it was a set of rare things slotting into place like the other teams that normally win the league didn't do very well that year. They were all in a bit of transition and messed things up and, you know, they were all a bit rubbish. So it wasn't a super high number of points that won won the league that year. And, um, yeah, they obviously got momentum. And, th and there was this period, I remember, where suddenly people were like, they might actually win the league. And then they're like, sure, yeah, no, they might actually win the league. And then they, you know, it's like what Jordan was saying about the underdog effect and morale. The whole yeah. world kind of got behind this yeah. team and they started believing they could do it. And um, yeah, yeah, it happens. So, yeah. yeah, no, nice. Uh, Jordan? 
It's not, yeah, again, it's not my favourite underdog, but I think when I think of underdogs, I think of the Rocky films. Mm. Um, and I'm not even sure if Rocky is the underdog. Maybe it's Apollo Creed in one of them. Um, well, he starts he's, out cer- as the he's certainly the underdog at the start. Well, he yeah. doesn't. He loses. Does well, he, lose he, dra- he draws. One? They draw. They, oh, they, right. That's the whole. Yeah, they. They. Um, it's a split decision or something. And but certainly by the um, third film, the yeah. story is about him how he's not the underdog anymore, and he should be. Yeah. He needs to adopt that mentality. But I think that's a really good like cinematic portrayal of the whole effect and how it plays on our psychology. It's and a good everything. point. And the fact that by the by film four, they, they've got to keep making him the underdog. And the only <laughs> way they can do that is by keep creating bigger and bigger overdogs each time. Ivan yeah. Drago being yeah. obviously the yeah, best yeah, yeah. Of, yeah, yeah. of all of them. Yeah. Is it East versus West or man against man? Um, okay, cool. Um, Nick? Well, actually, Nick. Well, I found out about this uh, yesterday. I was doing the research, but I really like it. And also, it's not very often the Germans are portrayed as the underdog in World War II, but I was intrigued okay. to discover that a man called Fritz Klingenberg um, defeated several thousands uh, strong Yugoslav army with a force of six men. And apparently they, uh, he was d- conducting some reconnaissance into Belgrade at night, um, snuck in through enemy lines with six people, um, got to the centre and um, c- captured some Yugoslav troops, rocked up to the mayor and said, oh, we've just captured Belgrade. The, the mayor then surrendered. They then put up some flags, um, making it look like there'd been a general surrender. And then 15 more Germans arrived in a truck, I think, and managed the surrender of the whole of the local Yugoslav army. And, um, yeah, and so basically this one guy with a few of his mates took over Yugoslavia. Very good. He was yeah. bang- heartwarming. He was- yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> Nick's favourite underdogs, the Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, but, but, yeah, he was, obviously, he was obviously banking on quite a lot of potential capital there, wasn't he? Of, of, it, it was, if it had just been him and his 15 mates... And not Battling the entire Wehrmacht that could potentially turn up to his aid. Uh, I suspect they'd have um, they'd have shown him where to go. Yeah, I mean, if if the but if the Germans had won the war, and I'm not saying that should have happened, but if they <laughs> had, it would be stories like that, which would be yeah. you know we'd we'd be using to celebrate their plucky underdog status and how they defeated the entire world by themselves, despite being just one one country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, nice. Um, yeah, my one. Uh, as you know, I, I like I like a bit of boxing. Um, and um, it, my, my sort of favourite underdog is typically not seen as an underdog, but Muhammad Ali. Um, and I must admit, this is fresh in my memory because although you know I've read autobiography, sorry, although I've read biographies on him, uh, just recently there is the a new Ken Burns documentary that's being shown on on BBC, which, by the way, is very old fashioned um, the way it's shot and especially interviewed. Um, he keeps using that. Ken Burns yeah, effect. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's a real um, cliche. Yeah. The, 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 the funny thing is, the Ken Burns thing still looks fine. That looks fine. It's just the interviews are just so strangely lit and the way it's um, the narrat- uh, the way it's narrated. Anyway, anyway. Um, Muhammad Ali. I mean, um, I think especially thinking to the rumble in the jungle against George Foreman, um, where there's just no way that anyone thought he could he could win, and 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 the way he the way he fought that I've not actually got onto that bit in the in the doc, in in the documentary. But anyone who's not seen it, I recommend. Um, what's the film called? When we were kings. When we were kings. Yeah. I mean, 
a phenomenal, phenomenal man who flawed but deserves his accolades. Um, I don't know how much more I can talk about. I'm not really expressing just, yeah, Muhammad Ali, a wonderful. Did he invent? But did he invent a grill which gets rid of George Foreman? Yeah, yeah. That's the Muhammad Ali didn't. No, that's what I'm saying. So there you go. Who's got the greater legacy? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And weirdly, George Foreman now is sort of viewed as this lovely big cuddly uncle, you know. but you look back in, you know, that was certainly not his, um, um, what's the word? That was Persona. That was not his persona uh, when he was a, a prize fighter. Okay. All right. Um, I think we've done it. Yeah. All Any, right. Anything to add? Not really. Good stuff. All right. Uh, we'll stop there. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrew. I've been here with Jordan Fermanis, Chris Ragg, and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights. Until next time. Goodbye.